You're listening to WHTT Speaks Out. Each week, Chuck Carlson and members of We Hold These Truths look into events that are, for the most part, ignored or overlooked by the mainstream media. And we analyze these events to get free and periodic updates to this program and our other interesting programs. Be sure to enter your email address in the subscribe to WHTT box on the right side of our website, whtt.org. And now, ready, set, let the sparks fly. In today's WHTT Speaks Out, we're going to talk about a recent uh, groundbreaking article that Chuck Carlson wrote, and it's entitled, ICC Put Savers at Risk to the Dollar Debt Bubble. And Chuck has created a new acronym. ICC stands for International Currency Click. So we'll talk a little bit about that. And you may be wondering, well, why are we talking about financial issues like this? Well, it's a moral issue, we contend, and we see the breaking down of our society. We have the criminal banking class that are basically going free and getting support from the government. And so this concept of an international currency click is not a, a new one, but the association's of the different governments. The key central banks include the Bank of Japan, the Central Bank of Europe, the British Central Bank, and the private Central Bank of the United States, the Federal Reserve System. So, Chuck, why don't you give us a little background on this article, and we want to have also Craig give some comments to tie in the moral aspect Okay, thanks, Tom, and that's exactly where we're going, and that's where we're coming from on this. In the first place, if you haven't stopped to think about how wars are funded, they're invariably funded with printed money. If you went and taxed people and said, we want to bomb Iraq, it's going to cost each family uh, $10,000, so we'd like you to ante up. You only have to put up 1000 a day. If you don't send your 1000 we're going to collect it from you because we really need the war in Iraq. How far do you think the war in Iraq would have gone? That was not done that way. Instead, the Federal Reserve and its allies in the Treasury Department work out a deal where they actually print the money to pay for the war, and it's painless to us as we watch the other side being a slaughter. So the first moral problem with the wanton printing of money is that it does finance war and it takes life. The second and less obvious result of it is that the printing of money destroys the value of people's savings. The reason for that is that when you print a lot of money, it becomes abundant. You drive down the value of it in the marketplace, and the value of money in the marketplace is uh, identified by the term interest or interest on your savings. In other words, the reason you're getting one-tenth of one percent interest on your savings instead of the five percent you would have received 30 years ago is that there's so much of it. And the banks are flooded with it, and government agencies are flooded with it, corporations are flooded with it. There's so much money that the banks don't have to pay you for interest on your money. It is one of the most destructive things that can happen to the frugal and the savers is that the value of their money draws no interest. They earn nothing on it. Think about it for a minute. If someone had a, had a, a little savings account of $10,000 that they hope someday to retire on, in uh, five years at 5%, they would have approximately twelve or $1,300, or maybe a little bit more with compounding. Under the present system of zero interest rates, effectively, 
which is being practiced in many countries around the world, uh, your savings brings you actually nothing. And at the end of five years, your $10,000 is still 10000 if you haven't been charged an overdraft fee. And if you've been charged one of those, it would be less because one overdraft fee or one bank charge will wipe out a whole year's interest on savings. So the moral problems, two of the moral problems with proliferation of printed money is that it finances war, and secondly, it destroys our savings. Those are both bad things for the family. I want to say, just as we started the program, I've got the national U.S. debt clock clicking up right now, and, and Chuck, you've already cost us $8 million just since the time you've been talking here. So uh, that, that clock is, uh, is, is going... Well, my value is really going up. <laughs> <laughs> what I want to bring at, up is the, the moral standpoint, you alluded to that, Tom, of what we're doing to our, our children, our grandchildren, and down the line. I'd just like to go through some of the basic scriptures concerning it. Obviously, we start out with the Ten Commandments in uh, Exodus 20, and God spoke all these words saying, You shall not steal. Proverbs 13:22, A good man leaves an inheritance to his children's children. Proverbs 20:21, 20, An inheritance gained hastily in the beginning will not be blessed in the end. Lamentations 5.2, our inheritance has been turned over to strangers, our homes to foreigners. Obviously, uh, judgment and curse following that. And 1 Timothy 5.8, but if anyone does not provide for his relatives or his family, and especially for members of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. And then finally, in Romans 13, fulfilling the law through love, verse 8 says, Oh, no one anything except to love each other, for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. So what we have clearly through Scripture is that we're to provide for our children's children, to lay up an inheritance. And what we're laying up for our children's children is a massive debt that they can never pay off. So this truly is an immoral function, and it's been going on, like you said, Chuck, uh, 1913 when the Federal Reserve came in and just started ruining and devaluating our money. Came across an ad the other day that uh, like Model A or Model T Ford, it was like two or $300. And now, now you go down to the, the car deal and it's a $20,000 expenditure. I always think of the analogy of a pot of soup. You have a soup and you just keep adding water to it and pretty soon you, it's so watered down it isn't worth anything and that's what's happened to our dollar. It's become worth less and is heading to become totally worthless as it gets watered down by the Federal Reserve. And there's nobody on the horizon that's standing up to this. last person we saw, I think, was Ron Paul, who was uh, touting a banner of, of uh, auditing the Fed. But uh, no, no one is uh, saying that now. And until we uh, see the monetary policy turn around in this country, uh, I don't think we can see a, a moral turnaround because, like you said, Chuck, if, uh, if they knocked on your door and said, like, $1,000 so we could you know, blow up somebody else in the world, uh, no one would do it. Anyway, uh, that's just some, some scripture background and just showing that uh, it is immoral to, to go into debt like this for our families down the road. Chuck, you might uh, explain to people about this international currency click concept and how it works. Uh, one question I have to, to begin with that maybe people are interested in how come our dollar, the U.S. dollar, is so strong against some of these other currencies? It makes no sense when we've got so many problems here and our debt is approaching $19 trillion, I guess, now. And so it 
doesn't make any sense. Well, Tom, the answer to that is, is pretty simple. We're all massively deceived. And uh, one of the things that causes business people who watch the dollar and in international markets to think everything is okay is that the dollar does seem to be relatively strong. It's gone up, for instance, against the Canadian dollar recently. That's because Canada's got a lot of economic troubles right now uh, with their oil industry, for one thing. But the reason that the dollar remains pretty strong, it, it doesn't go up or down much, is that it's measured against these other currencies. And the international currency clique, as I've called it, it's been called many things by other people, it's a connection of international banks that essentially call themselves central banks, and they're privately owned, and there's a lot written about this, and we're not going to try to explain it to you tonight. That's why we've written the paper. Uh, we want you to read the paper. But uh, these huge international private banks that, that basically reign over governments in their own way are balancing the currencies out. They all print the money of their respective governments, whether it's the euro or the pound sterling in England, or whether it's the dollar, the U.S. dollar, or the, or the yen. And I'm going to leave out the countries like Russia and the, the developing countries because they're in a little bit different position. But what happens is these major countries that really are controlling everything and have the international currency that's used for, for oil transactions and for international trade, that being the dollar, they tend to support each other's currencies to maintain this delicate balance so none of them look weak. They all look like they're okay. At least they're not collapsing in front of us. Uh, many years ago, we were told, and I, I grew up being told this in prior life, that the dollar was doomed. It, it would eventually collapse because so many were being printed. People 30 years ago simply did not understand how uh, cleverly the international clique, the international currency or money clique, was able to balance off the currencies to keep them all floating by printing each other's money in some cases. So we can't look at the, our own dollar, the strength of it or the weakness, to determine what kind of condition our economy is in. We have to look at other things. And uh, that is the deception that's promoted to protect the international money clique and to allow them to get away with endlessly printing literally trillions of dollars of money every month. It's, it's now, somebody's printing a trillion every month now. Quite amazing. And we'll mention here, ladies and gentlemen, if you're interested and have not read, want to find out about the private banking cartels, the Federal Reserve in particular, the definitive work on this is a book entitled The Secrets of the Federal Reserve by Eustace Mullins. And it's very, very well documented. It is a uh, private banking cartel. We received a comment. We can't verify this to Chuck's article here. He says, quote, Roth, I, I assume that may be Rothschild of London, owns 57% of the U.S. regional banks that make the Fed. That means the Federal Reserve System. They have since 1913, and none has been sold since. Sales must be reported, and none have been ever sold. Thus, Rothschild of London essentially controls the U.S. money system. Okay, we don't know this uh, writer. We don't know whether he's accurate or not about his percentages. But he is basically correct in that there is an international money clique. And at one time, the Rothschild family was probably 
one of the starters of that and was thought to have been very early in the central banking game, uh, starting out in Germany and then, and then uh, uh, leaving Germany pr pretty much and concentrating on, uh, on England as being their, their basis of building central banking around the world. But we don't get involved in trying to determine who the names of the parties are, and that's why we invented our own term. ICC or International Currency Click is our own word. So we know what it means to us, and, and we try to stick with things that we can sort of define ourselves. There is one other thing about low interest rates, which, of course, is the way that our economy is being pumped up, is by printing money, therefore making the interest rates very low. Uh, there was an interesting article today in a publication that I get all the time, and sometimes quite accurate and, and usually very interesting. And they pointed out something that's rarely talked about. And what they said is that low interest rates enable bad companies to continue for a long time and thus causing disruption of economies. And they point out very accurately in this particular case that the collapse of the petroleum industry in recent months, uh, the, the huge drop, which has resulted in a lot of unemployment in the, the petroleum industry, uh, largely resulted from super low interest rates. Those interest rates allowed companies to borrow money cheaply when oil was $100 a barrel to uh, produce, uh, the story tells us, oil that was only profitable at 80 or 90 or or $100 a barrel. And so when the price of oil dropped to uh, $40 a barrel, which is currently 40 or 45 dozens of these companies actually went out of business, throwing employees into the street. And the worst of it, of course, is that John Q. Public was lured into investing in these bad securities because of the low interest rates and the fact that he couldn't get any return at the bank. And so his mutual fund would go and invest in these fly-by-night new oil companies that were uh, taking this enormous risk that no one knew they seemed to know they were taking. And as this story very accurately pointed out, uh, in the end, you have a big collapse and a disaster for investors. And uh, I happen to know a young oil guy who was very talented, and he became a small businessman and the last I heard about him is he had invested his life savings in a marginal oil situation like this, uh, resulting from the fact that he was able to borrow most of the money. So the proliferation of easy money is not always healthy. It may sound good. It results in distortions. And this uh, interesting story tells about it. Chuck, what about, you're talking about zero interest, and now they've got negative interest rates, which even seems like complete insanity. So, in other words, you would be paying the bank to hold your money. That's true. And we really do have that because I looked at a savings account recently that paid uh, one-tenth of one percent, and in this case, that turned out to be $68 a year on a $60,000 savings plan. Well, $68 a year is like one-tenth of one percent. So it's very pathetic returns people are getting on their savings. People are being destroyed because frugalness is not rewarded. And then, of course, thrown into the mix are the bonds that are being issued, and you've covered this in other articles, and we don't really need to go into it in depth, but they're all kind of interconnected together. Yes, the low interest rates are created through the bond market where the treasury actually prints the bonds 
and then the Federal Reserve Bank simply buys them with printed money, and they buy all that is needed to make sure that there are plenty of buyers. The nature of bonds is that the price and the return go in opposite directions. So the bottom line is by creating more, they actually cause the, the interest rates to go down. And that's exactly what's happened until we have very low interest rates and very high bond prices. Something else that happens that is very destructive to the middle class, we all consider ourselves middle class. Sometimes we look at our bank account and we wonder. But something that does happen to us is that our savings are largely turned over to professional investors. Uh, the mutual fund industry, the banks, other hedge funds for some people, uh, other forms of managed investments. And our uh, savings, because we can't trust the bank to pay us any interest, uh, we tend to pour our money in, into uh, managed accounts, uh, managed often by banks. The banks are among the biggest managers. And uh, these dollars are then flowed back, usually a, a, a major part of them are flowed back into U.S. government bonds. And as we previously discussed, this process of driving down interest rates to make money readily available tends to cause the price of those bonds to be very high. And we will not try to explain the teeter-totter of bonds and interest rates. We go into it in detail on our papers and explain why this happens. But what the result of it is, is the public, through their mutual fund investments and their 401ks and IRAs and other forms of savings investment, end up with disproportionate amounts of their money invested in bonds, which then become grossly overpriced and are extremely dangerous. And in our paper, we quote several very astute and well-known bond investors who are now telling us that the most dangerous thing they can think of is government bonds. One writer, a very prominent bond expert, who we've known about for years, points out that weekly and daily fluctuations can literally wipe out all of the interest paid on a government bond in one day or one week, easily. And uh, it is literally possible to invest in something that is now a government bond issued by one of our wonderful governments, England, the United States, Germany, that half or, or a third of the value could actually be lost in the marketplace if there is a large increase back to normal interest rates. So investors or non-investors who are just trying to defend themselves from the zero interest rates they get at their bank are, are now jeopardized by having their savings put in harm's way, put into things that have always been seem safe but actually could lose 25 to 30 or 40% of their value in some cases. This is the nature of the overvalued bond markets that we see now in the world bond markets. Uh, we've decided to speak out a little bit on this because it's something we know about. We feel a pinch ourselves. We're all in the same boat. We all look at our bank account if we have one and wonder why we're not paid any interest. We all wonder, what should I do with my money if I have any? What is safe? Are the institutions themselves safe? Are the banks safe with this going on? The government insurance seems to offer some protection as long as it's there, so to some degree. So we've decided to speak out a little bit more about this as this crisis looms more ominous to us. And as we see other people who we think are pretty astute pointing out that the very most safe investments that people have always thought were traditionally dependable, like the United States government or treasury bonds, could actually be 
a disastrous investment if you consider losing a third of your money disastrous. I consider any loss in an instrument that you buy because you think it's totally safe to be a disaster. You should be able to find things to put your money into that do assure you that you will at least get your money back. Well, Chuck, let's talk a little about some of these alternatives. Of course, there's hard assets like gold and silver, but the rise of vehicles like Bitcoin, you might talk about some of those kinds of alternative investment strategies. Well, gold is an alternative investment because it doesn't pay interest. So right up front, you know you're not going to get back an interest rate return. But uh, through the ages, people have bought it because uh, it has a way of holding its value, though that the gold fluctuates, and it fluctuates a good bit. There is no country on the face of the earth that, that I know of at this time, correct me if I'm wrong, that has issued a currency that is backed by gold. But at one time, the U.S. dollar was backed by gold. The pound sterling was backed by gold. Uh, the German mark was backed by gold. The French franc was backed by gold. At one time, the Swiss franc was backed by gold. None of those are anymore, so you can't exchange them for gold. And uh, one by one, these countries have inflated themselves out of their position where they can no longer even consider uh, offering to give you something firm for your dollar. This is why the dollars are so dangerous. Now, there's no country that has come up with a a gold-backed currency, though countries have talked about it. There have been organizations of countries, lesser countries, uh, not third-world countries, but developing countries like Brazil and Russia that have talked about issuing gold-backed currencies, but uh, the pressure on them coming from the big guys is too great, and it's just not happening. Uh, we are seeing, however, alternative currencies by it being issued by private organizations, and the most common of those is called the Bitcoin, and the Bitcoin is an electronic money that isn't backed by anything at all. It's simply there because the inventors of this computerized money have somehow convinced the holders that there's no way that it can be counterfeited and that there's no way that there can be more of it created. And therefore, there are investors in it. And the very fact that the Bitcoin has gone from uh, something like $1 to uh, $435, and at one time it was, it was up in the 800s. The fact that it had this enormous increase in price indicates that there are a lot of people that are looking for an alternative currency where they can put their money. Uh, what's happened, of course, with the Bitcoin is it's become a, a highly speculative instrument where people are betting on price going up or down. And But you can actually buy a Bitcoin, and, and they are... There are no coins involved, but they are an alternative privately issued currency. I'd like to point out that none of us are old enough to remember this, but in the pre-1920s, actually going back in the gold rush days of the 1880s, there were many privately issued currencies that were simply issued by a local bank, and they traded in the community, and people bought and sold goods with them, and you could take them down to the local bank and redeem the money that was issued, the notes that were issued by the bank. Uh, later on, the Federal Reserve made it illegal for any state bank or, or, or private bank to issue any notes. In other words, they created a monopoly for themselves. And uh, that's another story. And then I think Tom mentioned Eustace Mullins' books, and he covers these things rather nicely in his history of money. But there is a, a movement today toward various kinds of money, and then a couple of them seem to be gold-backed, and we're not going to talk about any certain 
issues today, but we will be letting you know. As we learn, we will share it with you because we think it's important. There's a lot about money in the Bible. In the days of Jesus, the money that was circulated uh, was Roman, most uh, likely, most of it. The Roman government corrupted their own money, and they did it because they spent so much money fighting wars that they had to actually corrupt their own money in order to finance their own wars. They weren't able to bring enough booty home to uh, pay the cost of the wars. In other words, they ran deficits on their wars, and they ended up destroying their own money in the process. There's a lot of history to this biblically, and also a lot of it in the history of the Roman government, which is a great example to look back upon. And if you want to look at something more current, the British government, of course, destroyed their money by a whole series of wars, one in South Africa, one in Sudan, one in India. They ended up destroying their money and having to go off the gold standard in the 1920s. People might wonder why we're talking about finances with We Hold These Truths, which we seem to take a pretty strong stand against Christian Zionism, but it's because the monetary policy of our nation that allows these wars to continue. We mentioned that earlier, and the idea is that this money is accessible to the people, these warmongers, that they could just print it and keep, keep these endless wars going. And that's why we stand firmly against this monetary policy, and we stand firmly for peace, because without excess funds, there wouldn't be the wars because the problem. Well said, Craig. Thank you. Thanks for listening. If you like this program, please let your friends know about it and our other thought-provoking podcasts. And be sure to visit our website, whtt.org, for a wealth of information on Christian Zionism and other critical issues that we face. Also at whtt.org, you can watch for free our award-winning documentary film, Christian Zionism, The Tragedy and the Turning, Part 1. Join us in our efforts to wake the town and tell the people. Start small, think big, and press on towards the straight gate.